Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And this is Elizabeth Norman. In this episode, Caroline Faraday is having a moment. As is her home, Connecticut Landmark's Bellamy Faraday House. There's a lot of hand-wringing these days about whether historic houses are still relevant, but a visit to the Bellamy Faraday House inspired a current New York Times bestseller. We'll discover that compelling story and why you should put this on your bucket list of places to visit in this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. This is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And this is Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored. Today's story takes us from Connecticut to Germany to Poland and back with a stopover in Atlanta. Wow, yes, yeah, see if you can follow along with us. Part-time Connecticut Caroline Faraday's humanitarian efforts during and after World War II inspired first-time novelist and then Atlanta resident Martha Hall Kelly to write her best-selling historical novel, Lilac Girls, published in 2016 by Ballantyne and just out in paperback. So we went to the Bellamy Faraday House in the little town of Bethlehem, Connecticut on a beautiful June day in 2017 to hear Kelly talk about what inspired her to write her first novel. First, the backstory. Caroline did so many smart things in her life, but leaving her estate to the Connecticut landmarks was one of the smartest. They've taken such good care of her home, and I think she would be really happy. Caroline Faraday was 10 years old in 1912 when her parents bought a summer home in the Litchfield Hills. Her father, Henry McKean Faraday, made his fortune in the dry goods business in New York City. Her mother, Elizabeth, was a member of the Woolsey family, the same family that Woolsey Hall at Yale is named after. Her father died just two years after the purchase of their summer home, but Caroline and her mother would summer there until her mother's death in 1953, and then Caroline, who never married, summered there until her death in 1990. She bequeathed it to Connecticut Landmarks, which has five historic sites open to visitors in Connecticut, including the birthplace of state hero Nathan Hale in Coventry. The Bellamy Faraday House was built beginning in 1754 by Reverend Joseph Bellamy, minister of Bethlehem's Congregational Church for 50 years. Though Reverend Bellamy had his detractors, a 1935 article in the Boston Evening Transcript wrote, Dr. Bellamy not only named the town, but he virtually founded it, guided it through its first early years, became its wealthiest resident, owned the biggest house in it, put the town on the map through his own reputation as a scholar and a minister devoted to God, attracted many theological students to it who spent money on board and room, and left it at his death, well-established and flourishing community. Faraday's family collected Bellamy's books and appreciated the 200 years of history that came with the house they purchased in 1912. When the house was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1982, Carolyn Faraday was still the owner. The federal nomination refers to it as the Joseph Bellamy House and really only covered its colonial history. But history moves on, and the heroic story of Carolyn Faraday in the 20th century 
is as important as the house's colonial history. It's so fitting that the house now is referred to as the Bellamy Faraday House. Caroline Faraday is described as a socialite and a Broadway actress, but neither of those seem to accurately describe a woman who, as we'll hear, documentary filmmaker Stacey Fitzgerald describes as a woman who moved governments. Faraday shared with her father a love of France, and in the run-up to World War II, she supported the French resistance as an early member of the Fighting French Committee in America and volunteered at the French consulate in New York City. During the war, she was particularly focused on helping women and children in France, especially orphans, who were desperately in need of food, clothing, and other necessities. At the end of the war, she got involved in supporting the Association of Deportees and Internees of the Resistance, ADIR for short, founded in 1945 by women resistance fighters who had survived the German concentration camps. This group included Genevieve de Gaulle, the niece of General Charles de Gaulle, who was arrested by the Gestapo when she was just 19 and sent to Ravensbrück where she remained a special political prisoner for the rest of the war. Ravensbrück, located 50 miles north of Berlin, was a forced labor camp for women. Prisoners were forced to work, under really brutal conditions in agriculture, local industry, the production of armaments, and camp maintenance. It's often described as small, but in January 1945, the camp held 50,000 prisoners from more than 30 countries, three quarters of them women. In August 1942, the Nazis began a program of medical experiments at Ravensbrück on young female Polish prisoners. They attempted to simulate war wounds and infections such as gangrene that often followed in order to test experimental treatments. Bones and muscles in the women's legs were broken, cut out or otherwise damaged, and the wounds deliberately infected with bacteria. Genevieve de Gaulle in her memoir about her time in the camp wrote, their legs are horribly mutilated. They hop and jump about with the help of makeshift crutches. These young Polish girls, the youngest is 14, have been operated on half a dozen times. The women nicknamed themselves rabbits because they hobbled about the camp. Connecticut explored story about Caroline Faraday by Kristen Havel in the winter 2011-2012 issue includes a photo of Barbara Pietrzyk and Maria Kuzmierczyk taken in the camp in October 1944. Pietcher, just 16, when she was imprisoned in 1941, stands close to the back corner of a barracks. She smiles shyly at the camera and holds the bottom of her coat open to show the wounds on her legs, because Merzik hovers in the shadows in the background. Oh, I can only imagine their bravery at this moment, knowing what would happen if they were caught. I know, it's haunting. The camera, remarkably, had been smuggled into the camp and then out again six months later in April 1945 when the camp was liberated, informing the Allies of what had been happening in the camp. Both women survived the war, but sadly, Pierchuk died in 1947 due to the lack of proper medical care. As the war neared its end, the Nazis planned to cover up their activities and kill all of the rabbits, but the other women in the camp somehow managed to hide them for nearly three months. Remarkably, 63 of the 74 young women subjected to these experiments survived the war.
but the camp was liberated by the Soviets, and both the camp and Poland ended the war behind the Iron Curtain, so the rabbit struggles were far from over. They were not welcomed home, and some joined the resistance against the communists. Getting help to them, both medical and financial, was difficult. Having learned about them through the ADIR, undaunted, Faraday threw herself into the cause. A number of the self-described rabbits testified at the Nuremberg medical trials in 1946 and 1947 and were partially successful in getting justice against their perpetrators. In terms of reparations, however, they left empty-handed. And though in 1951 the West German government agreed to pay reparation to victims of medical experiments, the rabbits were denied as West Germany did not have diplomatic relations with their country of birth, Poland. Enter Caroline Faraday in 1958, 13 years after the end of World War II, and as the McCarthy Red Scare era in the U.S. began to ease, Faraday began to organize. She was among the first to awaken the American public to the horrors of Ravensbrück and the plight of these women now languishing in communist Poland. Martha Kelly mused to her diehard fans, as she called them, about why her book had been such a success. I, I do wonder sometimes what it is about the book that made it such a hit, and I, I really think a big part of it is Caroline herself and the fact that she was such, she could have done anything she wanted. She, she had the means and the beauty and the personality to do whatever she wanted, and she took these women under her wing and did so many other wonderful things too, not for money or fame or power, but because it was the right thing sorry, to do. And I think that nowadays people want to believe that that's possible again, that we can be that America and that we can be like Carolyn Faraday. Faraday recruited Saturday Review Editor-in-Chief Norman Cousins and Nuremberg trial lawyer Benjamin Ferentz to her campaign to help the surviving rabbits. Cousins helped publicize the story with stories in the Review. Faraday went to Warsaw in 1958 to personally meet the women and invite them to the United States to receive whatever health care they needed. She returned to Warsaw a second time that year with Dr. William Hitzig, a prominent New York physician who had aided Japanese victims of the atomic bomb for the Hiroshima Maidens Project. He represented American doctors who had agreed to treat the women if they came to the United States. He examined the women and assessed their medical needs. 35 of the surviving rabbits came to the U.S. in December 1958, staying into 1959. They stayed with host families from Boston to San Francisco. Four women spent Christmas with Faraday at her home in Bethlehem. Kazmierczyk, who hovered in the background of that photograph taken in 1944 and who had testified at the Nuremberg medical trial, was one of the women who spent that Christmas with Faraday. A news story reported, four women who have seen more hell in their lifetime than a human mind can imagine are here today spending a quiet, happy Christmas holiday in this village named after the town where Christ was born. On the table in the living room of Miss Faraday's large colonial home is a small Christmas tree that they brought from Poland. It is decorated in the traditional manner with candies and paper ornaments and an angel on top. The small tree symbolizes the hope that has kept all the Ravensbrück rabbits alive since they returned to Poland. By now their story had become widely known and in the spring of 1959, they were hosted at a special lunch at the Capitol in the U.S. Senate dining room. Senator Edmund Muskie of Maine, whose father had immigrated from Poland, noted Faraday and Cousins' work, saying, 
It is significant, I think, that even now, a decade and a half after the end of the war, we are still far from having achieved substantial justice for these victims of some of the most inhuman actions on record. Connecticut Landmarks invited Martha Hall Kelly to speak about her book. The event was so popular, they held a second event a few weeks later. This has been such a labor of love for so long. If you had told me back in 2000 that this would be happening, that you would all be here, that I would be in Caroline's Playhouse signing books, I would say, you're crazy. A former advertising copywriter, Kelly was living in Fairfield when she first conceived of writing the novel. In the middle of the project, she and her husband moved to Atlanta when he was appointed CEO of the Weather Channel. Now back in Connecticut, Kelly is working on two prequels based on Caroline Faraday's mother and grandmother. Kelly's the kind of person I described as just lovely. She exudes a warmth and appreciation for her fans, a deep respect for the subject of her story, and a surprising humility at finding her first novel so well received. Let's listen. I never uh, intended to write a book. I um, was an advertising copywriter uh, way back when, and I had, um, in 2000, I had retired from that. I um, had my third child, my son Michael, who's here in the front row, and he uh, kicked the slats out of his crib one day and walked out, and I said, um, sorry, um, I said, I have to stay home with these children, I think, because, you know, this is getting crazy. So um, I quit my job, and I was a stay-at-home mom. And But then one gray Mother's Day, uh, after my mother passed away, uh, I was feeling sad, and my husband, Michael, said, why don't you go up to that house you've always wanted to go see, the Bellamy Faraday house? And he knew that I wanted to come up here because I had carried a clipping around from my... Uh, in my wallet from Victoria Magazine for months. And it, it, the title of it was Caroline's Incredible Lilacs. And it showed this beautiful house and the gardens and her as an actress. And um, my mother loved lilacs, so I thought, okay, I'm gonna take him up on it. He said, I'll take care of the kids, which was the secret phrase, you know, wonderful. <laughs> and so I drove up here from Fairfield, Connecticut, and I was the only person on the tour that day. Uh, I, I got to tour the gardens, it was kind of a gray day, and I had a wonderful tour, I, I think her name was Anne, and she was just lovely, and when we came to the landing that you all saw today, outside of Caroline's bedroom, that had, um, you know, she was such a francophile with all of her photographs of Napoleon and de Gaulle, but I was drawn to a smaller photograph that you saw up there today, of um, these middle-aged ladies lined up in three rows, and I asked, who is that? And, and, um, and said, well, those were the rabbits. And she told the whole story of how at Ravensburg concentration camp, the only all-female concentration camp um, in the Third Reich, they nicknamed them the rabbits because they were their experimental, they did experimental surgeries on them. And they nicknamed them that as well because they hopped about the camp after their legs were experimented on. And she told me that Caroline brought them to the U.S. and the whole story that, that you all know now. And I just thought, how did that story get lost? And I drove home that day, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So I started coming up here and uh, got to know the wonderful docents up here and uh, started working in the archives. At the time back then, uh, they were down in what was the old uh, root cellar, 
and you could just go down there and sit and page through these incredible rose books and all of Caroline's things. Now it's all archived, beautifully done by Connecticut Landmarks. But back then I used to just come up and I had no intention of writing anything. So I did that for a while and then my husband and I met a couple in New York City. We went out to dinner and to a play and I, I just started talking about the story because I kept it secret. My, my sister says in her diaries, she went back and looked and um, she said that I swore her to secrecy because I didn't want anyone to know that I was coming up here because I thought it was weird and people would think I was weird, which it was. <laughs> Definitely weird. So I started telling this couple about the story in Poland and everything and the female half of the couple, I mean Betty Sargent, said, oh, we have a new Polish daughter-in-law and I'm really interested in Poland and you should write this. This is a novel, I think. And uh, oh, by the way, did Mike tell you I'm a book editor? And I said, no, Mike did not tell me you're a book editor. And she said, all I need is a chapter. So I thought, well, that's crazy. I, I've written 30 second commercials, but how do you even write a novel? And I was polite, but said, you know, oh, I don't think so. So fast forward to, I had to stop my research up here. Um, and we moved down to Atlanta with my son, Michael. And the other two girls were launched already. Uh, and he was at a new school, and I dropped him off and uh, at, at high school and went through my usual Starbucks drive-through to get my usual decaf cappuccino, but the barista gave me a caffeinated one by mistake, and I went home, and the story just started pouring out. And of course it was a Caroline chapter, because I'm from Massachusetts, I know Connecticut pretty well, and I, I was fortunate enough to have, um, I asked Sandy Neve if he had any information and he was so generous and gave me some wonderful starter information and I was off and running and I loved writing about Caroline I, I just I felt like I, I you know we were kindred spirits in a way but then I started realizing I want to add two more characters and one was Herta Oberhauser and I found out about Herta she was the only female doctor at the all-female camp and participated in the experiments. And I found out about her here at the Bellamy Faraday House in the archives because Caroline was researching Herta. So I thought, wouldn't that be interesting? What was that like to be indoctrinated into national socialism? Um, I wanna write from her point of view as well. I had just read The Help and I, I loved that three-person point of view. I'd never written a book and I don't have an MFA, so I thought, well, that should be an easy way to do it. Um, and then I wanted to add a third character, one of the so-called rabbits or lapines, and um, I wanted her to be um, kind of an amalgam of all the different rabbits, because all of them had such incredible stories. But I thought, I have to go to Poland and Germany. Um, I can write about Connecticut, but I don't know anything about Poland and Germany. So I bribed my son to come with me. I told him he could have one beer, which he gladly, he said, yes, I'm going. Um, and he, um, he's a film major, he just graduated, but he was into film even then, and um, he filmed a lot of it for me, which was really wonderful. So we went to Lublin, that's where we started, and that's where the women were from, and that was an incredible experience. We got to see one of the uh, secret letters that they write, and uh, those were real secret letters that they wrote with their own urine in, in Ravensburg. And I saw one of those letters under glass at the Museum of Martyrdom, which is the perfect Polish name, I think, for a museum, but um, under the clock, which was Nazi headquarters. 
Uh, so we uh, were really inspired by seeing Lublin, and then we took the same train route that the women were forced to take so many years before, from Warsaw to Berlin, and then from Berlin up to Furstenberg, which is a little town about 50 miles north of Berlin. And sadly, a Himmler liked to build his concentration camps in bucolic settings, and, and Furstenberg is such a pretty little town. A lot of the women, the Polish women, when they arrived there, they remembered it from when they were younger, when they would go there on fishing trips with their parents. And uh, but sadly, when they got off this time um, at the platform, they were met with guard dogs, and it was a very different experience. But when, when we arrived in Furstenberg, it was just such an emotional time, and going through the camp was, um, was incredible. A lot of it is still there. The barracks are gone, but the commandant's house is still there, and the shooting wall that the women were marched to it was still there. People lay uh, roses there because they don't have graves. Um, uh, the women... Um, were sent to the crematorium once they died and, and tossed into the lake. So a lot of people put flowers in the lake and it's, it's a really beautiful tribute. So I learned a lot on that trip and came home and Mike got his beer, by the way. Yes, very important. But I came home and started writing and didn't stop for five years and came up here periodically to check things um, from Atlanta. Um, but uh, then I, and I thought, oh, no one will care about this story. I will just self-publish or whatever. I mean, I don't, I'm not Clyde Kessler or, you know, Janet Ivanovich. No one's going to care about this. So I queried agents and got an agent. Um, so that was exciting. And she said, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Her name's Alexander Machinist. And uh, she said, I want you to go back and rewrite the Herda character because I think you can do better, and you've made her somewhat cliche. And I had other offers from other agents, but I, I took her, and I spent a year uh, researching National Socialism, and I think it made her to better. And, and so a year went by, and I brought it back to Alexandra and said, okay, what do you think? And she said, thank you for doing that. She said, now I understand why they did it. And I, that was such an emotional moment. And uh, so she said, okay, we're gonna send it out. And I was like, what? I don't get to edit anymore. But um, she said, yeah, we're gonna send it out. And to make a long story short, Valentine uh, acquired it, which is part of Random House, a wonderful editor there. And we were off to the races. My husband and I, one day we were sitting at our house in Atlanta and a UPS package came and it was one book. And I thought, you know, they must send you like a big box of books. No, it was one hardcover book. And we took it out of the package and put it on the coffee table and just stared at it like it was like a newborn baby or a, a live bomb or something. And I thought, who is going to read this? Um, they're taking a big chance on me. So a week went by and you know, it was pretty quiet, few Amazon reviews, but I was like, oh well, this is fine. I, I will move on with my life. Uh, and then I went to the UPS store to mail the book to a synagogue on Long Island and they thought maybe they would have me come talk. So I handed them my American Express card and my phone started ringing and I didn't have my glasses on so I, I just let it go to message. And they kept, it kept ringing, and I thought, okay, I have to go outside because I can't use my phone in here. <laughs> so I went outside in Atlanta, um, and I answered the phone, and there were women screaming 
and champagne popping. And it was my editor, they called themselves Team Mylock, and they said, you made the New York Times bestseller list. It was crazy. So um, that was the, the hardcover, and um, it, the paperback just came out, and it's been 14 weeks on the, the paperback bestseller this time, which is just amazing, and really, really, you know, it, it's just so gratifying to know that the story that I thought nobody cared about would, would um, you know, become a hit. And, and I just, I, I hope Caroline's up there somewhere saying, wonderful. Kelly's friend and collaborator, Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Stacy Fitzgerald, is working on a documentary called Saving the Rabbits of Ravensbrook, due out next year. But one day, Michael introduced me to a friend of his and his wife, uh, Dave Fitzgerald and Stacey. Yes, I had, had no idea when I went to dinner that night that I'd meet Martha and then find myself in Poland, Germany, uh, Connecticut, um, meeting a, a former uh, prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials. Um, had no idea uh, about this journey that I was about to um, embark upon. And, you know, I think for me, that night when I met her, um, she started telling me about this story, and I was like, this is true, this happened? And then I started wondering why I hadn't heard about this woman, Carolyn Faraday. I thought, this woman moved governments. How, how do we not know about her? Fitzgerald and Kelly interviewed several of the survivors. Fitzgerald spoke about what Faraday's humanitarian assistance meant to the survivors. They talk about what she gave them, their dignity back, their respect, and the wonderful thing is now Poland realizes the national treasures that, that they had, and it was, and it's um, not only due to, to them and their choices, their amazing choices they made in their lives, but Carolyn Faraday. We invite you to visit the Bellamy Faraday House, to walk in Caroline's garden, tour the house, see the photograph of the Ravensbrook survivors on Caroline's desk, and be inspired by the work of Faraday to help victims of war. Visit ctlandmarks.org for more information about this and Connecticut Landmarks' other historic sites to visit, and find your inspiration at one of Connecticut's many incredible historic sites. To read more about Faraday in the winter 2011-2012 issue of Connecticut Explored, just go to ctexplore.org and search Faraday in the upper right-hand corner. Find out more about the documentary Saving the Rabbits of Ravensbrook at rememberravensbrook.com and visit marthahallkelly.com for information about Lilac Girls and her next book. Thanks for listening. We thank Martha Hall Kelly, Stacy Fitzgerald, and Connecticut Landmarks. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Norman and Patrick O'Sullivan. For more great stories about Connecticut history, subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. The summer 2017 issue is all about food. If you love to eat, you'll love the issue. And coming up this fall, breakthroughs. From Connecticut's role in the development of the Muppets, to 100 years in the freedom struggle, to fighting for reproductive rights, we've got more inspiring stories for you at ctexplored.org.